in terms of announcements, I'll be leaving next Wednesday to go to Kiev, so I appreciate your prayers. I return on the 25th. I will be here Sunday. Some people miss, listen, I've, it's really interesting things I hear back that I've taught. <laughs> My response is, really? <laughs> or announcements that I have made. So I don't know, something really gets uh, confused. But anyway, I will be here Sunday. I will be here next Tuesday night. I will not be here next Thursday night. While I am gone, uh, Elber White will be teaching on the two Sundays. And then John Williamson will be teaching on the Tuesday nights that I am gone. And then we're going to show videos from three of the presentations from pre-trib this year. And you will find all of them uh, quite fascinating. Uh, there will not be, due to my schedule, a deacon's meeting or men's prayer breakfast in January, but we will resume that in February. We'll make it up somewhere along the line, and you'll be informed as to when that's going to be. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of Silent prayer, time to be spiritually prepared or to recover spiritually if necessary due to the fact that uh, there's been sin in the life. Whenever we sin, we are to confess that sin, which simply means to admit or to acknowledge that to God the Father. And instantly, we are uh, cleansed of that sin and uh, forgiven of all other sins. So, that restores us to our walk by the Holy Spirit. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're all ready and prepared to study the Word this evening, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that we have forgiveness of sin, that we are cleansed, because of Christ's work on the cross, that he paid that penalty at the cross, he eradicated the certificate of debt, and he opened the way to you. And Father, we're thankful that our salvation is not dependent on anything that we do. It is dependent upon what Christ did on the cross, and that we have positional forgiveness in Christ from the moment of our salvation and experiential forgiveness when we confess sin. And none of this is dependent upon anything in us, only the work of Christ. 
Father, we're thankful that we understand that there is a great conflict among the angels, spiritual warfare, and that there is this rebellion, and that our lives are very much a part of that um, that whole angelic conflict. We are, as it were, evidence, evidence of your grace, evidence of your goodness, and that even as we live our lives, we are to give testimony as we go through testing. This is what we've been studying in First Peter, and that that this is very much a part of uh, Satan's ploy is to attack and to destroy uh, our witness. So, Father, as we continue our study and continue the study of the role of Satan and the angels and spiritual warfare, we pray that you'd pray that you'd help us to understand our significant role in all of this. We pray in Christ's name, Amen. All right. Well, we have been studying in First Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, there is a warning to the recipients of this epistle. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And that that's in the context of this epistle where again and again and again, Peter has warned the recipients that they're going to face Suffering, They're going to face adversity. They're going to face persecution at one level or another. It may be just the rejection by friends and family. It may have to do with the loss of uh, people who are they are in business with. Or it may be a more determined uh, opposition and persecution from government. Of course, all of this is spoken of in somewhat general terms because the application extends throughout the various ways in which Christians are tested in, the, in their spiritual life. And part of the testing comes as a result of uh, the fact that we're living in a fallen world and Satan is the prince and power of the air. He is the god of this age. And as such, he is in a position to bring opposition and persecution against believers. Now, this doesn't mean that Satan necessarily is directly involved because he is a creature like all other creatures. He's finite. He is not omnipresent. He is not omnipotent, nor is he omniscient, for that is only uh, can be applied to God. But he has his minions, the fallen angels, who are uh, throughout all of the world, and he can carry out some of his plans and purposes uh, through them. So last time, we're, we're in transition from this brief verse that Peter gives us at the end of First Peter. Paul does the same thing in Ephesians. He waits till the end of the epistle, and then he plugs in the spiritual life to the framework of spiritual warfare and spiritual conflict in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. And so what we're looking at is the fact that as, as Peter says that Satan goes about like a roaring lion, he walks about, he walks to and fro on the earth, observing, looking, seeking targets, uh, either directly through himself or through others. The classic example of that that we have in the Old Testament is the book of Job. But before we get there, I wanted to take us through these 
uh, really three key passages in the Old Testament related to Satan's fall and then related to uh, Satan's work as an adversary. The term Satan is a term that relates to his being an adversary. It is not used uh, as a as a as a noun without the article in the Old Testament. It is Ha Satan, the Satan, the adversary. So that is that is another title. And last time we looked at uh, the passage in Isaiah 14 that talks about the fall of Satan. And this time we're looking at the uh, Ezekiel chapter chapter 28. As we look at the passage, there's the three commands to be sober, to be vigilant, and to resist him. And it's important to understand that that all three of these have, have to do with what you and I can control. We can control our mental attitude. We have seen that be sober has to do with uh, how we think, thinking objectively, thinking clearly without distractions, that the term for being alert means to be focused, to be uh, awake, understand the ways in which we can be tempted and tested, the ways in which we can fail. And then the word to resist him is an important word because it represents the fact that we are to stand fast uh, against Satan. We're not to engage him in offensive warfare, some of the charismatics, uh, some of the crazy folks you see watching um, tele-evangelists you make fun of Satan and they're going to stomp the devil and they're going to attack the devil and give him a black eye and these kinds of things. And that is the opposite of what this these commands indicate. This is what we can do. And it all has to do with our with our spiritual life. So we started looking at what the Bible teaches about spiritual warfare, Satan and suffering, because not all suffering is related to decisions that we make. I briefly covered this that um, when, when it, a couple of lessons back that in suffering and testing, we suffer, we face adversity for basically uh, two reasons. We suffer because of things that we do, and it is deserved suffering. We make bad decisions, and we face the consequences of those bad decisions, and sometimes God intensifies those consequences in divine discipline. Or it's undeserved suffering, and there's a couple of different categories of undeserved suffering, one of which is that we're living in the devil's world, so we're going to we're living in this corrupt environment, so we will face adversity and disappointment and suffering. We live uh, with other fallen creatures, so we suffer by association because we're uh, connected to an economic system of a nation in which we live, and as a result of bad decisions by government. Uh, leaders, then we suffer. Sometimes we're blessed, but more often there is adversity rather than positive benefits. We live in a world where we are associated in a business. We work for a company, a corporation. We work for a business, and for whatever reason, the leaders make bad decisions, and we suffer consequences for their bad decisions. We have spouses and children and parents that make bad decisions, and as a result of that, we suffer. Now, a lot of people will limit 
their understanding of suffering to those categories. There's another category of undeserved suffering, and that's the category that we will study coming out of the book of Job. Uh, Not all suffering is a result of us making bad decisions, and not all suffering is the result of being associated with people who make bad decisions. There is some suffering that comes because Satan is going about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So that is all part of the topic of spiritual warfare, which I defined as the, uh, the angelic conflict, as the invisible spiritual warfare between the forces of Satan and the forces of God. This is what we see with Job. Job is not at war with God. God's not at war with Satan. I mean, with Job. Job is not really at war with Satan, and Satan is not at war with Job. Satan is at war with God, and he's going after uh, Job as collateral damage. So we need to look at this to understand who Satan is. Now, one of the interesting things that I got a question about this maybe 15, 16 years ago, somebody asked me about in the Jewish community, there's no doctrine of Satan as a fallen angel. That is uniquely understood uh, as a Christian doctrine, and that's true. But we have to understand that much of modern Judaism is the result of the development of the Pharisees who survived the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. The Sadducees had no allegiance to the temple. They had no allegiance to the law. They they were the the liberals in the Jewish spectrum of, of religion. They didn't believe in resurrection. They only really believed in the Torah, and they didn't believe in the rest of the Old Testament. They didn't believe in life after death or angels or any of those things. They really, you know, once the temple was destroyed, that was it. It was sort of a historical thing, and they just moved on. But the Pharisees were committed. They were the conservatives. They're committed to Torah. They're committed to the whole Old Testament. They want to, they're concerned about the fact with the temple gone, how are we going to be forgiven? If we can't sacrifice, how are we going to have a relationship with God. And so they gathered together at a place called Jamnia or Yamnia, and they met there and they basically reformulated Judaism to survive in a non-temple environment. And it is, and it was so that out of that uh, foundation, you have the growth of modern rabbinical Judaism or orthodox rabbinical Judaism that is in the post-temple period. But what's, what's, um, what's interesting is that modern, so that modern Judaism then must be understood as the result or even the fruit of Pharisaism, not the Sadducees or the Essenes or any of the other groups. It's, it's really the result of, and the development from that Pharisaical, Pharisaical root. And so when we look at the scripture, one of the things that we have to understand is this whole doctrine that we call progressive revelation. God didn't give the whole Bible to to Adam after the fall, or to Noah, or to Abraham, or or to Moses. There's there's incremental revelation down through the centuries so that it builds, so that... 
Abraham knew more than Noah. Noah knew more than Adam. Uh, and when you get to the New Testament, sometimes you understand things that weren't very clear in the in the Old Testament. For example, there may be confusion over just who that snake is in the garden. It's not clearly stated in the scripture, although I think they understood it, and it's clearly, I think it's clearly implied in places, but they, you don't get a clear, overt statement until you get into Revelation 12 when it talks about the dragon, the devil, the serpent of old. That's when it's clearly specified. As a result of that, you've had some Christian theologians I knew a couple of professors at Dallas Seminary when I was there who believed this. I know of some today that believe this. John Calvin believed this. There were others in the Christian, in the church community that believed this, that the serpent was just a snake. And it wasn't because if, if, if you were a Jew in the plains of Moab and all you had was the writings of Moses, you would never be able to figure out that that serpent wasn't just a snake. And so their argument is they they wouldn't have known that that was that was Satan. But I think that's a uh, a rather specious argument, and is not one that holds water. So we see that that this because of the presentation in other parts of the Old Testament, you see this understanding of this creature called Satan, who's introduced in in Job one, which is where we're headed. Uh, Job 1, he is Hasatan, and I believe that Job was probably the, there's a lot of disagreement on this, but I believe, along with a certain number of scholars, that Job was probably the first book written because it handles the most significant question. That is, why does God allow all this suffering to be going on? And that's the whole purpose of Job. But when we get into Job, we're going to be introduced to this creature, Hasatan, or Satan, and so we're addressing this question of who is Lucifer, uh, who is Satan, and how did he fall fall into sin? So last time we looked at the first of the key passages, which is in uh, Isaiah 14, and we see the uh, he's addressed. This is New King James Version, uh, where we get the title, as I pointed out before, Lucifer which is uh, taken from the Latin Vulgate translation, which focuses on, on this creature of light as he was before the fall. And so lux, which is a Latin word for light, uh, becomes uh, transferred over as Lucifer. The Hebrew is Halel ben Shahar. Halel in the Hebrew is the shining one. That's why it was transferred over into um, in, in the, uh, Latin as the angel of light. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. As I pointed out last time, Isaiah is prophesying the ultimate destruction of Babylon, which comes at the end of the tribulation. So he is looking forward to this taunt against the one against the Antichrist ultimately, but the power behind the Antichrist, which is Satan. And so this is a taunt against him. And it looks back in these verses to Satan's original sin. And this is what he said, I will ascend unto heaven, I will exalt 
my throne above the stars of God. The term stars of God is a term that was used to describe the angels. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. This is a, a term that refers to there was a mountain, Mount Zaphon in the north in, um, in Syria, which was a, like Mount Olympus in Greece. And it was where the angels or the, the, the gods and goddesses congregated. And, of course, when you study through the Old Testament, you realize that, that Moses has already made it clear that the idols, these false gods and goddesses, are really empowered by demons. And so the gods and goddesses in the Canaanite and Syrian pantheon, those gods and goddesses are really sort of the face of demons. So we have uh, this reference to where they live, the mount of the congregation, the dwelling place of these angels. Um, On the farthest sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Clouds, again, are often associated with the appearance of angels. And so, and then finally, I will be like the Most High. So these five I wills all express the arrogance of Satan. This is the original sin. He wants to be God. And Adam emulated that when the temptation came to Eve, that when that the reason God didn't want them to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was, you'll be like God. And so, so his basic temptation is see, taste, eat, and you'll be like God. And she looked at the fruit, looked good to eat, and she wanted to be like God, so she ate. And then she enticed Adam, and Adam ate. And so it's this is the ultimate arrogance of man to supplant God and be his own God. So we see the fall of Lucifer here. It occurs, I believe, before creation at least the restoration of creation in Genesis 1-2. I've taught this before. But we have a, a unity of the angels at the foundation of the earth when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. There's no split at that point when the foundation of the earth is is given. But yet, you know, when you get to Genesis 3, there's already this overtone well, actually, in Genesis 2, there's also an overtone of something negative, which indicates Satan's fall has occurred by then. So there's a lot of debate there, uh, which I've gone into in other studies. Okay, in Ezekiel 28, 12 and following, we come to the second main passage. So turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 28, and let's look at this passage and what is going on here. This gives us another perspective, another look at the fall of Satan, other than the look that we have of um, in Isaiah. A couple of things I want you to note here. This is within the structure of a series of judgments or oracles that are given against Tire that start back in chapter 26. Those judgments against Tyre are given because Ezekiel as a prophet is announcing that God eventually is going to judge all these nations that were the enemies of Israel. He's going to bring a judgment against Ammon in chapter 25, against Moab, against Edom and Philistia. Those are all in chapter 25. And then he starts to focus on Tyre 
in chapter 26, chapter 27, and chapter uh, chapter 28. There's a, another judgment against Sidon starting in 28, uh, 20, then in chapter 29 against Egypt, and that's 29 and 30. And so uh, this is within this framework of announcing that at the end of history, God will eventually bring his judgment against all of these, these different nations. When you get to chapter 28, there are there you get to verse 11 now verse 11 there's a clear break between verse 11 and verses 1 through 10 verse 11 begins moreover the word of the lord came to me saying but it's that introductory statement indicates that that there's a transition from what was said in the first 10 verses to what is now being said starting in verse 11 and here's how this began. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise and emerald with gold, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were uh, created. And so what we have here is the introduction of a second lament. Now, a lament is a like a funeral dirge. There are two in chapter 28. The first begins in verse, verse 1. And so when we look at there, we're going to see that there's a different person addressed than in verse 12. Verse 12 is addressed to the king of Tyre, using the word melech. And verse 2 uses a different word. It's addressed to the prince of Tyre. This is uh, the prince of Tyre. We read in verse 2, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up and you say, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods in the midst of the seas. Yet, and then this is the divine in, in, indictment. Yet you are a man and not a God, though you set your heart as the heart of a God. So he's clearly addressing a man here, that he is a man. He's not a God. He's lifted up by pride. And this self-absorbed ruler is aspiring to the adoration of all of the people to be worshipped as a god. And so, this, as I said, this is addressed to this individual as the, as the prince of Tyre. The Hebrew word that's used here is the word nagid, which is the word for a ruler or a leader or a prince, but it is distinct from the word melech, which is the word for king. So there's clearly two different uh, personages that are, um, that are used here. Furthermore, Ezekiel uses the word melech rarely, apart from his identification of King Jehoiakim in the first chapter. 
He doesn't use the word king to refer to any other of Israel's monarchs, and so it is a very rare uh, word. But here he uses it in distinction from this one that is described as a, uh, as a prince. And so what we see here is something that is not uncommon in Scripture, and that is that a human leader is the front for a uh, angelic personage who is the real power behind the throne. And so the king of Tyre is the angelic personage who's the power behind the throne. He's the real source of evil. And we see indications of this in other... Pa- when, For example, when, when Peter is, uh, is, it says something to the Lord, and Pe- that, that, Lord, we're not going to let you be crucified. And the Lord says, get behind me, Satan. He's addressing the source of that temptation that that Peter succumbed to in in arrogance as Satan, and he addresses Satan through Peter. And you have other examples of this uh, in Scripture as well, where uh, Satan is addressed through the human leader. It happens with the uh, Antichrist uh, later on in the in the end times. So he is uh, the, the personage, the focal point shifts when you get down to uh, down to verse 11. Furthermore, there are things that are said about the king of Tyre that cannot be said of any human being. Now, I pointed out last time that if you look at various modern study Bibles, you will note that they have uh, they will usually identify, more often than not, they identify the king of Tyre here as a human king, as a, or they relate it to some mythology, but they, they will say, no, this isn't Satan. Um, that is, um, as I'm going to point out, that, that's not the case. And so the case is that it's a shift to the angelic power or Satan behind, behind this, this throne and this individual, uh, this human leader who is uh, reflecting the same sin of arrogance that was true about, uh, uh, about Satan. The description of him are things that cannot be said uh, about about a human leader. For example, uh, the statements like, you were the seal of perfection. This is God speaking to the king of Tyre. God would not be addressing Ethbaal III, who was the king of Tyre, at the, or the prince of Tyre, the human ruler of Tyre at this time. He would not be uh, be addressing Etbaal, spelled sometimes it's spelled I T, sometimes it's spelled E T H B A A L. He would not be addressing him and saying, "You were the seal of perfection." This word, seal of perfection, is is fascinating. It's the Hebrew word tachnit, and it has the idea of perfection, and and the idea of a uh, of, in the sense of a gauge. For example, in the U.S., if you're going to measure something, there is the U.S. Uh, standards uh, of measurement that has the uh, the precise measurement that is the standard for all measurement. You want to measure inches or 
length or temperature or weight or any of these things you have to it has to conform to the uh, US standards for weights and measures Th- that's the idea here is that the standard of perfection especially in the area of wisdom and beauty is in this creature that could not apply to a human it couldn't apply to a mythological creature either because these various gods and goddesses in the pantheons of of the pagans were, were deeply flawed they ha- exhibit all the sins of, of human beings so god is is indicting him on the basis that you were the gauge you were the the measure the one against whom perfection was measured there was no creature god created that was more perfect than this creature that was more beautiful than this creature that was uh, more intelligent more powerful than this creature this creature who we come to call satan is the standard of beauty and perfection that's why paul says in second corinthians 11 that satan appears as an angel of light this idea that satan appears uh and that he's uh, got red skin and a uh, you know, a pointed tail and horns is just one of many different depictions of Satan that uh, that are designed to distract people from the truth. And we depict Satan and demons always as that which is ugly and horrible and fearful and frightening. And yet the scripture says Satan appears as an angel of light. His job, he's the greatest counterfeiter of all history. His job is to entice people with that which looks uh, good and pleasing and and wonderful. Uh, I always remember when I talk about this, when I was, uh, I think, a junior in college, the film The Exorcist came out. Then I think they made Exorcist Two and Exorcist Three, and I hadn't heard anything about it at that time. And a, and a buddy of mine who had also grown up going to church together, we'd been friends at that point for seven or eight years, and he called me up. Let's go see this movie. It's supposed to be a great scary movie. And so we went over to the old Village uh, Theater in West U. And we were sitting up there in the balcony, and we had the best fun just watching people squirm because people had no concept of who Satan was and what demons were and what demon possession was all about and what exorcism was all about. And so they were all exhibiting all of the the fidgets and fear and anxiety and everything, and we just kind of laughed about it because it didn't bother us because we knew what was fiction and what wasn't because we understood what what the Word said. And so Scripture doesn't present Satan in that kind of a horror picture that you get in 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 films and in uh, uh, and, and in books. You see. Satan is depicted as this wonderful creature of light. Kind of makes me wonder when you read these stories about people who die and then they're they're moving to the light. Well, what light is that? You know, Satan appears as an angel of light. God is light. But is this... God, of course, everybody assumes it must be God because I must have been good enough to be saved, and when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. Or is this the angel of light who is about to embrace them in his uh, malevolent grip? 
So this is, this is the picture here. You are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom. This, this is an adjective, an idiom in Hebrew that indicates that, that, that this person is completely characterized by these attributes. Wisdom, the beginning of fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. The word here is a different word than the word for perfection, um, Use in seal of perfection, and in some cases it has the idea of that which is uh, just uh, when it's applied to a person. We'll see it applied to Job. Uh, that it's applied to Job. He's a mature believer. He's not sinless, flawless. He is, though, a mature believer with no apparent uh, overt sins that would be the cause of his suffering. And uh, here, that's uh, it's used more in the sense of flawless. There was no sin yet as the text develops as we go forward. So he is blameless and flawless, and the uh, absolute standard of d- divine protection. Then we find out something else. You were in Eden, the Garden of God. Now, this isn't Eden the garden that is east of Eden that is described in Genesis chapter 2, and it appears to be uh, different. Now, if you've read Arnold Fruchtenbaum's book on um, Footsteps of the Messiah, he has, a, for the most part, a very, very good chapter at the end called the I think it's called the five, maybe it's called the, maybe it's the six abodes of Satan. And I think he's done a, a, a really good job there. I agree with about 99% of what he says. The one thing I don't agree with is he's arguing that this is, is the original creation of God in Genesis 1-1. That I agree with. But he says this shows that the environment of the earth at that time was a mineral environment. I think maybe that's extrapolating it a little bit too far. But what's interesting here is this list of of gemstones that we find here, that there are nine gemstones that are mentioned here, that every precious stone was your covering. And if you were Jewish, what you would recognize as you read through this was that that nine, these these nine gemstones represent nine of the 12 gemstones that were in the breastplate of the high priest. What would you, if you were Jewish and you were familiar with the, the, the breastplate of the high priest, what would you think as you read this? You were thinking that, that this creature functioned somewhat like the high priest of Israel, that this, this, uh, cherub that is described here that we don't get to the term cherub until the next verse so you're you read this and you see this this creature must have a priestly function now it, this is when the only creatures are the angels there's no human beings yet there's no other creatures created you just have the angels and this seems to be the greatest, most impressive, most powerful, most intelligent, most perfect of all the angels. And this one seems to be somehow related to the priestly ministry. So maybe he's the high priest of the angels. Uh, 
I wouldn't say there's nothing to argue that that he is the high priest of the angels, but I believe he has that kind of a function. The next thing they says is the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes. And these two words indicate musical instruments. So not only is this creature beautiful, powerful, intelligent, and perfect, he's a perfect musician. So it's a hint course, the angels, we believe when they shouted for joy at the creation that they probably sang, there's an indication that the angels sing and there is music. Now, that's important to understand because we live in an era today when music in the church has really changed in the last 50 years, and part of the argument for that change is that, that it needs to reflect the new generation, the problem is the new generation that came along after the 50s is mired in postmodern thought, and so the music reflects a worldview. Music is never neutral. Music is, is there is a perfect music, and that, that was what was in heaven. And that music is in, on the earth among fallen creatures becomes corrupted by sin. And that doesn't mean that we can't approach a style of music that reflects God's character and God's values, but we can't treat music as the one element of all of creation that isn't corrupted by sin. And that is a presupposition in the whole um, movement of what's called contemporary Christian worship, is the assumption that it's not the music, we can use any kind of music we want as long as the words honor God. And as... um, uh, numerous people have pointed out in various works, including Scott Annual, who spoke here at the Chafer Conference seven or eight years ago and will be back in 2020. Music isn't neutral. Music is a language, and we have to be very, very careful what music we use to package the truth of God's Word. And so uh, we need to pay attention. That's sort of like if you saw a present if you saw a certain kind of wrapping on that present, you would know it was a Christmas present. If it had hearts on it, you would know it was a Valentine present. If it's got balloons on it and cakes and and candles, you would know it was a birthday present. So music is sort of like the wrapping that goes with a uh, with, with the words. Another way to think about it, it's like the frame of a, of, of a work of art. And if you ever get the opportunity and you travel to some of the great museums in the world that house some of the greatest art, they didn't just grab whatever was available to slap on the artworks in order to display them. There is a lot of thought put into the frames of the artwork so that it properly displays and focuses your attention on the artwork. It's not about the frame. It's about what it is presenting. And so those are just some illustrations to get us to think about this issue of music. So there's music in heaven. God has creatures who perform have music and musical ability. And so all of this was there before there was sin. And then in verse 14, God moves towards this 
closer to this indictment of this creature. It says, you were the anointed cherub who covers. The word for anointed is the uh, is from the Hebrew verb that's related to the noun Mashiach. Mashiach is, of course, the term for Messiah. But it basically means an, a person who is anointed or appointed to a particular position. So the term Mashiach as anointed didn't apply only to uh, only to the, the future Messiah. It was applied to the kings of Israel. It was applied to priests who were also anointed and appointed to a position. So this is talking about a particular cherub who has been anointed and appointed to a particular uh, a particular position. Now this cherub cherubs we know have have four wings as opposed to a seraph that has uh, more than four wings. Seraphs had six wings. You can alliterate that. Seraphs have six rings. Uh, therefore, cherubs have four four wings, and that uh, there's description of cherubs in other parts of of uh, Ezekiel, and they're not little babies with wings, which is how they're depicted in Renaissance art. They are powerful, uh, fearsome warriors. Their face, their faces, or their heads actually uh, represent. Uh, four different faces, face of a man, a face of an ox, face of an eagle, face of a lion. Uh, they are distinct from uh, seraphim, and they are the highest among all of the angels, and they are most closely associated with the throne of God, and that's what we see here. This cherub covers, and the word for covering there isn't the word that was related to to kafar, which is the word for pro, uh, propitiation or atonement, uh, the covering of sin. This is a different word, and it refers to a, a something that would physically cover or guard or protect something. Um, and it it um, pictures Satan as as this this creature who, with his Beauty and with his four wings would have served as the cover over the throne of God and heaven. And so he is very close to God, the highest of all of these, all of the angels. And so God says, you are the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You are on the holy mountain of God. So this then relates to this garden of God as a mountain, which is the uh, indicates power. Uh, it's a symbol of kingdom or authority as well. And it says, you walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. Now, that seems to be a little bit uh, less easy uh, to interpret that, but it seems that there were fiery stones. This could also refer to uh, gemstones that were reflecting light, and so it indicated fire. I think this is why uh, Arnold takes the view that that the the basically the topography, the makeup of this uh, this world of this angelic world, first creation of God from Genesis one one, is primarily one that is. Um, characterized by gemstones, emeralds, and diamonds, and rubies, and that kind of a thing. 
Verse 15, we read again, you were perfect in your ways. Second time that we've seen this. From the day you're created until iniquity was found in you. So this creature is created perfect, sinless, flawless. There's no corruption at all. And then something happens. There's sin. Now, what happens in the intervening period? That's what Isaiah 14 talked about is that that the arrogance that is is found there in this creature so what we see here is lucifer we'll use that term for him the pre and the pre-fall uh, satan has volition he has god apparently gave the angels the ability to obey or to choose to disobey god and so we see that that he is enticed to disobey God and to uh, make himself into something. Now, the next verse becomes uh, illuminated a little bit when we understand what was going on in Tyre. Tyre was a major shipping port and was the major shipping port on the eastern end of the Mediterranean. And the Phoenician people were very well known. Ezekiel is writing around 600 B.C. But back at the time of David and Solomon, the Phoenician people ruled the oceans. They they took care of all ocean-going commerce, whereas we know during Solomon's reign and Solomon's kingdom that, that uh, Israel did. And that under Solomon, they... Uh, they controlled all the commerce. And if you think about a map of the Middle East, all of the trade routes from the far east to the west went through the eastern part of the Mediterranean. And the ships of Tyre and Phoenicia would bring goods from far distant points, would bring them to Tyre, and then they would be offloaded, and they would be put on uh, camels and other uh, beasts of burden that were basically the uh, uh, the covered wagons. If you think about a 19th century reference, the Teamsters or modern uh, modern trucks or trains taking the goods to other parts of the of the interior. So so they were very proud of this, and this was part of what made Ethbaal the third so arrogant in terms of wanting to be worshipped as a god. And so that analogy is developed, and God says, by the abundance of your trading. And that's the idea here, is that, that, that as the, 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 the human prince of Tyre was responsible for all this commerce and trading that was going on, this creature that God has sent over the angels is also trading something. He's also involved in some level of commerce. And what it appears is that what he's trading, what he's in charge of, what he's responsible for, is the worship of the angels to God. He is functioning something like a mediator between the angels and God, bringing their worship to God. And he is becomes jealous. He wants 
all the adulation that is going to God to go to him. Look at him. He's perfect. He's beautiful. He's more powerful than all of these angels. So isn't he due some of this worship as well? And so that's what he's being indicted for. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within. See, arrogance is within. It's a mental attitude sin. And it it violently disrupts the soul. And so he is um, uh, filled with violence within, and you sinned. And this is Satan's original sin. He uh, becomes arrogant and wants uh, the trade. He wants the attention. He wants the worship. So God says, therefore, I cast you as a profane thing that's in contrast to holy, which is the... the, uh, description of that which is set apart to the service of God. I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. And then we have a description of what the sin was. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. Now, this takes us from the past to the future. He will be exposed for who he is before the kings of the earth at the end of the tribulation period. That is what Isaiah is really talking about when those future kings are um, are singing that indictment against uh Halel ben Shahar in Isaiah 14. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. So this is talking about, uh, it's, it uses a past tense, but in, in Hebrew as well as in Greek, there's something called a prophetic past. It talks about a a future event by using a past tense because it is so certain that it will happen. It is spoken of as if it has already happened. So what we see in Isaiah 14, double to 14, you have 28, and that's Ezekiel 28. So that's an easy way to remember the relation between those two chapters that these descriptions cannot refer to any human king or any mythological creature, which is the claim of a number of scholars, that this must refer to Satan. Otherwise, there's nothing in the Bible that tells us about the origin of sin or the origin of evil or the origin uh, of, of Satan. But in the progress of Revelation, we learn more and more about who this creature is. The first time he's mentioned is in Job. We'll get there. Then we see him mentioned in 1 Kings 22. We see this mentioned in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. And then in the post-exilic prophets, we learn a little bit more. And in Zechariah 3, 1, we see another heavenly scene. And so Zechariah is speaking here and says, He, referring to the angel of the Lord, showed me Joshua the high priest. This is the human high priest of Israel in the generation that's returned from the exile. So he's a new high priest, and he is standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. 
So that's where we see Satan. He's the accuser. It's Hashatan, meaning he is the accuser who's standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not, referring to Joshua, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? He would have been destined for destruction and judgment, but he's been brought out of the judgment and is now being set up uh, after the judgment of Jerusalem, now being set up to be the high priest. And then as sort of an aside, we're told now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. He hasn't been cleansed yet or anointed for his position. He's clothed with filthy garments. He's standing before the angel. And then he answered and spoke. This is God speaking again. He answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And to him, that is to Joshua, he said, see, I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with rich robes. This is a perfect illustration of what happens at our salvation. At salvation, we are clothed with our own relative righteousness, our own sin. We are unclean. And then when we trust in Christ, God puts new robes on us, the robes of Christ's righteousness, so that our sin is not removed. We don't become sinless. That's what I mean by not removed. We don't become sinless, but we are given the righteousness of Christ so that we are standing before God, not on the basis of anything that we have done, but on the basis of the righteousness of Christ, which is given to us, imputed to us, so that we have eternal life because we possess his perfect righteousness, not our perfect righteousness. So this is a a visual image of that, and Satan is accusing him. So Zechariah says, and I... um, And to him he said, see, I have removed. Uh, So Zechariah says, and I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put on the clothes by him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. So this is what would happen in the anointing ceremony of a a high priest. So in this picture, it's the same picture you have uh, described in uh, Exodus chapter 40 when Aaron and his sons are anointed where they go through a, a full bath. Uh, an anointing, and then they enter into the high priesthood. This is Joshua's anointing. And we see the role of Satan here, who is the accuser. He is the one who is uh, accusing uh, Joshua. This is what we see from Revelation 12.10. When John, is, John uh, the apostle, is writing, it says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren, referring to Satan, the dragon, who is mentioned earlier in that chapter, the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. So this is uh, the role of Satan, the adversary, he is the one who has been accusing Joshua, and God says, see, I've removed his filthy robes, I've given him robes of righteousness, and he is now clean. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, verse 6, and 7 says, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and if you will keep my command, 
then you shall also judge my house. Notice, God gives him the righteous garments before he tells him to obey his commands. He doesn't get the righteous garments because he obeyed God's commands. Salvation is not by works. The law was given to Israel after God had redeemed them from the land, not for the purpose of redemption, but for the purpose of teaching how a redeemed nation should live. Joshua is first given the righteous robes and then told to obey the Lord. The unbeliever can't do that. So this is a picture of what happens with us when we're an unbeliever. The issue isn't obey the Lord in terms of obeying the commandments and mandates of the Lord. That's legalism. The the issue for the unbeliever is to believe in Christ. At that instant, we receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness and then we are we have his righteousness and then we are told to keep his commandments so this is puts things in the correct order for us okay that sort of sets the stage helps us understand who lucifer is who satan is it's uh, not the best place to break but it's where we have to break we'll break here and then when i return in 3 and we convene back here on thursday night after kiev in three weeks, then, we will have, or actually it's almost four weeks, we will have, um, we will get into Job and understand a little more as we see an Old Testament example of Satan going around, walking to and fro like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Father, we thank you for this time we've had to study, to recognize that our lives are lived in the midst of a, of a cosmic, angelic, conflict, a cosmic uh, revolt by Satan and the fallen angels against you, and that suffering and adversity we face at times is not just due to our own sin, it's not just due to being associated with those who make sinful decisions, but it's associated with a special kind of testing that is related to our demonstration of your glory and your grace. And as we prepare to study for that, we pray that you'd help us to understand that and to gain a greater appreciation for the fact that we do live in the midst of an innumerable host of angels that are watching us and observing us, and our lives are a testimony to them. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.